And now, it's time for the Dad Bod Rap Pod with your hosts, Damone Carter, David Ma, and Nate LeBlanc. Dad Bod Rap Pod. We're back. It's another week. We're all, are we all vaccinated? I'm half still. You're half sinated. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and you, you know me, I always take double shots. <laughs> off top, off top. It's like a good coffee shop. All shots are double shots. <laughs> That's right. Make mine a double. <laughs> Nate is a half man, half Moderna. Um, <laughs> thanks, thanks. Be here all week. Um, uh, funky cold Moderna? <laughs> <laughs> Now Isa shot Pfizer. <laughs> and that is our program, ladies and gentlemen. You guys making uh, vaccination rap jokes. We are, of course, the Dad Bod Rap Pod. My name is Damone Carter, aka Dim One. I am joined, as I am every week, by the Bros. Nate, what's going on, man? I'm good. It's Thursday. We should pretend like it's Thursday when we're on. Yes, it's fake oh, Thursday. Yeah, yes, it's fake, th- it's fake Thursday somewhere. That's what's up. Uh, Mr. David Ma, how goes it? Yo, good to be here with you guys. Um, we got a really good show, um, yes. you know, in store and sort of, I think I would, sort of where Nate was going was that we're sort of perhaps cresting a little bit. I mean, we're on a little bit of a, a nice little run here. So it's uh, let, let, let's keep it going here for it. Absolutely. Uh, we've been able to pick up some new listeners, some new followers. The, the numbers are definitely very positive. Not mm-hmm. quit your job numbers or, or even buy a Honda Accord numbers, but <laughs> they, they are trending in a positive direction. And we thank everybody that's been rocking with us and everybody that's been telling their friends about the program. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun when people actually care about it. Right, Nate? Absolutely. Um, it's it's definitely cool like the the kind of array of different artists that we book we're picking up little collections of their fans as we go along which is very much the strategy but it's just cool to see it happen and as as i man a lot of our uh communications it's just we always appreciate when people reach out so like a lot of people have said over the couple of years we've been doing it's like that they feel like the show is just is made specifically for them. Like yes. they're our age, they get our jokes, they like the same music we like, but they also learn about new music. So it's very, very rewarding. And shout to Stony Island, like hey. having having yep, yep. that at a kind of behind us, having a team is just like been really amazing. And um, just to be among peers who also understand what it's like to do this on the week in, week out basis. And I think uh, it was Gary Suarez who. Uh, said on Twitter a couple of weeks ago by the time you hear this like we're we're capturing the history especially of the backpack era in a way that hasn't really been done before and this guest uh, helps fill in some gaps about stuff in his career and his time and um, he's an artist that kind of straddles that backpack era and then the whole like flowering of instrumental hip-hop in the mid mid 90s up through now you know Absolutely. Absolutely. We are uh, part of the documentarian crew uh, from Stony Island doing deep dives on things that people should have been writing and talking about a long time ago. But, you know, we are we are here to fill in that void. Today's episode focuses on, you know, somebody who's a big deal 
this is what this is where I always get with RJD too. Definitely a big deal. Like in terms of, of instrumental hip hop, in terms of placements, in terms of where and how you can engage with this music, super, super big deal. But also kind of not pop at all either. I'm very, right. I'm very um I find the place that he occupies to be really interesting and to talk to him about it uh, was definitely a, a, a treat. He's a super cool cat. Um, we'll definitely get into that in just a minute. He does, and I don't want to give away too much, but in the interview, he talks about um, what instrumental hip hop was kind of pre-shadow and kind of <clears throat> where he got it and, and where he took it. Um, I want to ask you guys a question. And this is kind of a, it's a very broad question, but take it where you will. We'll start with you, Dave. Um, instrumental hip hop has come a long way from being like the, the backdrop to rappers sure. to something that's like super chill hop to something that's very, you know, high production values, crazy shit. Um, can you kind of speak on what do you, what do you make of instrumental hip hop today? And like, where can it go from hmm. here? I, th I think the brilliance of instrumental hip hop or just instrumental music in general is that it's limitless. It could go anywhere. So, I mean, our experience um, with instrumental hip hop at first, they were just the vocalist versions of rap songs. I mean, as, as, least, as far as I knew growing up, it's like, oh, here's the instrumental to Gin and Juice, but it's not an yeah. instrumental yeah. song. You know what I right. mean? Right. So, I mean, for me, I think, um, it entered my consciousness with uh, introducing, just like most people, where it's like, it's instrumental. There are words, but the words aren't the focus of the song. And there's a narrative and the narrative is driven by all these other elements and textures and movements and change-ups and sort of an active arrangement. So to me, the best instrumental hip hop are the sort of, they're like living documents, right? They just sort of keep changing and switching up. And so, you know, to sort of tie that into RJD2, I remember, being on the message boards and how big um, Dead Ringer um, just yes. hit. It just made the yeah. biggest splash. And I was on Sage Francis's uh, nonprofit's um, message board talking to Alias, rest in peace, from Anicon about it. And I, I mean, at the time we were just, I'm not sure how old Alias was, but I, I think we're similarly around the same age. We were just geeking the fuck out of Dead Ringer, you know, just like everyone yeah. else. And I think it's a, it's a sharp, sort of message board moment in time that I don't think people will understand unless they were there. Mm -hmm. um, RJD2 mm -hmm. was the second coming of DJ Shadow, but also like just this new brilliant producer. And then he had works on deck with Blueprint and AC alone. And so people were like, is this, this guy's gonna be in commercials, which he eventually did end up being in. And so it was just like, he just encompassed this like second coming of a brilliant genius producer on, on you know, on the, um, on the shoulders of DJ Shadow. So it's, it was very interesting to see sort of how he took in his role, the role that was sort of thrusted upon him, mm -hmm. as well as just the different movements that his career made. Um, it was great talking to him. And um, yeah, I think, I think for anybody who was there at that moment, that this is um, an, an interview not to be missed. Absolutely, absolutely. Nate, we've, uh, we've come a long way with the instrumental hip hop. Have we gone all the way back around? I, I remember that for me, instrumental hip hop is kind of like, oh, DJ Crush has these beats right. that are instrumental that you kind of can't rap on. They seem to be saying that they're a thing unto themselves. And now we've come in some ways full circle where 
any major lo-fi um, YouTube stream has more views than any rapper you can think of. Um, wh where are we at now, Nate? What happened? Well, a couple of things on that. Um, the lo-fi beats you can chill and study to movement is fascinating. Um, the idea of a constantly evolving, but wallpaper-esque, like sonic wallpaper-esque mm -hmm. environment is, is one aspect of beat making culture and instrumental hip hop culture. There was a time I remember, especially when around the time we interviewed Eloquent um, a few years yes. ago where we talked to like, yes. you couldn't talk about beats without talking about lo-fi and mm, yeah. he kind of, you know, talked to us about it. Like he, some of his stuff is lumped into that world and he didn't right. mind at all. He was like, Hey, they're listening to me. Like, I don't care how they listen to me. Uh, and I always thought that was a great answer. And it's something that stuck with me a lot about that. But I also have been thinking a lot about um, the LA beat scene. I recently yes. in February did that month of listening to uh, beat records every day. Right. And I think the, where I've landed is this, there's never been more people who are more adept and skillful at beat making. And I saw something today, I believe from uh, Laurent Fintoni who wrote the book on this stuff, uh, Bedroom Beats and B-Side and a past guest of ours. And he's, he's saying, so we went from 96-ish DJ Shadow times the turntable should be recognized as a musical instrument. And it yes. has. And yeah. now we're at the controller needs to be uh, recognized right. as a musical instrument. It's probably the most important musical instrument of the last 30 years. Like everyone who makes music now has a laptop with a controller hooked up to yeah. it. You can take any sound in, you can find and manipulate it in any way you want. And that was, that's the, that's a cultural endpoint. Like mm. anything is fair game and it's all about your skills and your pattern and your kind of finger drumming and your editing and your filtering and phasing and all of the different things that go into current production. And that's a beautiful thing. Um, I don't yeah. always listen to a ton of that music. We have kind of homework for the show. We need to keep sure. up to date on the current rap scene. I can't follow the instrumental hip hop scene quite so closely. It's spiked in a lot of different directions. Um, and then I have like my own personal, you know, stuff I want to listen to. So it's not something I spend a ton of time on, but I do think there's just this huge bevy of um, things you could po possibly get into and, the best thing you can do is um, just find one artist that you love and then track Absolutely. their influences, their projects, their collaborations, their labels. That's how I used to do it before the internet existed. And now it's just so much easier. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but that's kind of what I'm thinking about with instrumental hip hop these days. Absolutely. Uh, it's very interesting to see how tools influence the music, right? Like mm -hmm. uh, the, the tools that exist at the time. And it'll be interesting to see where it goes. Uh, the guest that we have on today, RJD2, talked a little bit about his gear and his process, how he kind of puts things together. I think it's interesting thinking back to Dead Ringer um, as, as a shift, or not a shift, but kind of this interesting detour, uh, I think, in instrumental hip-hop where um, it became orchestrated in a way that didn't exist before, which is much easier to do now than it was in 2002. So part of what I kind of wish I would have asked him more about is just the technical achievement of putting mm -hmm. that together at the mm -hmm. time that it came out. Um, but 
it definitely kind of sparked all of these other genres and subgenres of instrumental, um, and what some people don't even call hip hop. Uh, and so it, it was really cool to kind of, we got to see him, you can't see him obviously, uh, through, through your, your earbuds, but uh, we were able to see him in his lab um, and kind of, you know, he, he took us through some of the stuff that he's doing in there. So um, yeah, really like this interview. We hope that y'all do too. So here is our interview with RJD2, Dad Bod Rap Pod. All right, Dad Bod Rap Pod. We're back again every week. We have interviews with people who are moving and shaping hip hop culture. Today is no different. Joining us in Zoom, we have incredible producer RJ D2. How's it going, man? I'm doing well, man. Thank you so much for having me, and I'm 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 humbled to by that introduction. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right on. Um, so yeah, let's let's get into it. Um, you know, we're obviously big fans of, of you and your work. You're from or raised in uh, Columbus, Ohio. And every time we have a Midwestern rapper producer on, I'm always curious about um, your influences uh, as a producer. And specifically, what direction were you looking in? Were, were you reared more on West Coast stuff? Were you looking East? Was it both? Like, give us a sense of, of, a, of a young RJD2 and, and how you're influenced. Sure. Uh, I think that how, what influenced me in terms of the style of hip hop uh, that I ended up making, I think was largely dictated by some externalities of time and, and, and region, you know? So in Ohio, people kind of listen to at the point that I remember Southern playlistic Cadillac music being a big deal when it came out because it was really the, in my experience, it was like the first Southern record that hip hop fans listened to here. And that seemed to be like a, I don't know, I, th I th see that as a watershed moment kind of. So people would listen to, you know, West Coast stuff, NWA and Dre and stuff. Cause by then it was like, that shit was huge. It was on the radio, that was like radio music. So there was, but in terms of like the, what you might call like the discerning hip hop fan, for the most part, people around here listen to East Coast rap, which is probably true of everywhere in the country. But, uh, you know, if you look at that early to late 90s period, um, I can safely say that I was mostly informed by New York rap, save for maybe five or six groups, you know, Outkast, Freestyle Fellowship, uh, the Quantum Soul Sides crew, some shit out of England um, that was like, in, you know, kind of one of the first waves of instrumental hip hop. And then there was some, you know, a handful of, you know, Ghetto Boys was kind of happening here. But beyond, I'd say Ghetto Boys and Outkast, it was in those, you know, aforementioned groups. It was mostly East Coast rap. 
Okay, thank you, man. Thank you for that. Um, let's just sort of um, move along regions a little bit. We just had uh, Bass Air on the program from oh, wow. Cannibal Ox. And, um, you know, um, th that album is celebrating its milestone. Uh, it's 20 years. And I know that Dead Ringer was, you know, uh, came out shortly after that, maybe like within a year or slightly yeah. over a year. Um, mm -hmm. Can you just give us a sense of you know, how you met LP and what, and you know, just what it, what was Def Jux and that universe like at that time? And just give us a sense of being there and how it struck you. Sure. Um, so to look at the, you know, the before I met L, um, that period of my musical life was, I was a DJ and producer in a rap group called the Megahertz. We had done a couple singles on Fondalum and Copyright had done a single on Raucous that I produced. And so that was kind of my world and my experiences there. We'd only done a couple of singles, so it wasn't like anybody had an album under their belt or mm. anything. You know, we were very much, the whole thing was pretty tenuous. You know, it was like, we don't, you don't really know if it's going to stick or not, so to speak. Um, and I was doing, basically when I started doing beats, my thing was like, I just went way I don't know how to put it, but like hyper involved and technical and like a bunch of samples and basic, effectively the blueprint that was Dead Ringer, just not as executed as well. In 1997, I got my first sampler and that's when I started, you know, right away making beats. And I kind of jumped in with both feet and was trying to make things that were more complicated than your average rap beat. Mm. And I had to learn that the discipline of uh, kind of scaling things back to uh, simplifying things you know, and, and, and to make things effective, but simple enough to work as a rap record. Um, and at that time, you know, I had this, all this other instrumental stuff that I was, or, or just beats that I was doing that kind of became songs that were more complex and involved and had, had layers and shit going on in them. And I didn't really have anything to do with them. You know, I didn't have a home. So I was shopping for labels and stuff. And a lot of the labels that were doing that type of music were, in, were out of the UK. So I was buying records of that type of music and then to get the, the credits so I could find a label contact so I could send my demos. And I think I sent around 25 demos out back when it was a big deal to like press a CD. You know, it was a, it was a thing, you know. Um, and none of, I got no takers on, on any of it. And at that point in time, I had almost, I was just at the, very close to giving up. Copyright was going up to New York to, I think he was going to meet with Bobito and he took a um, he said let me take one of these one of these demos that you're shopping around and I'll, I'll play it for Bob and I was like I was a little on the fence I was like look even if Bob's not going to play this shit on the air <laughs> and even if he did it's not going to get me a D I need these for a, you know <laughs> I didn't make a lot of money at the time I was I was waiting tables so you know a burned CDR was like I know that might sound silly now, but like, I didn't think I could afford to give away a burned CD. <laughs> um, so, but I, you know, I relented and he took it and he didn't play it for Bob. He did end up playing for L and that's basically where the thing started. And that's how I met him. And, you know, I just kind of fell in with that whole scene, him and Ken Ox and, and Aesop and, and Liff and that first wave of guys who put out records. So. Um, I'm glad you brought up how your kind of earliest 
stuff that is, was eventually billed as RJD2 and came out on Diff Jokes. It's, it's incredibly dynamic. There's a lot of volume play. There's a lot of different samples and movements within the beats. There, like, there's just so much going on. And I guess you kind of touched on it, but I was hoping we could go a level sure. deeper. Like, um, how is there a point where you were like, okay, this is, if you knew it was going to come out as an instrumental thing were you looking for little mini suites did you think of the sections as discrete like how did you start thinking about how to make these beats into songs my basic template for it was um my yeah my template or paradigm was my love of vocal music you know like uh and and for me the vocal music that still to the same stuff i love but um at that time it was almost solely um, American soul and R&B, you know, Motown, Stax, Volt, High Records, you know, The Impressions, Curtis Mayfield, so on and so forth, yada, 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 yada. And to, dig, dig, to get a little more specific with that, the, the, the paradigm of that music to me is that it never gets boring. I mean, it, it's rare that you would get bored in a song by the, you know, any of the Impressions records that are on Curtin, for example, because either the the chords are changing or the arrangement is changing or something is, co it's constantly evolving. It's constantly in motion. So, well, I don't think anything on that album, you know, is kind of like truly reductive of that type of music. You know, it's kind of re-envisioned as instrumental music for the most part, but that's where the basic, you know, if there was a rule that I had to follow, it was, the song can't ever get boring at any point in time. And we're doing instrumental music, it, that's really hard. I don't think that I was successful with it, but that was the goal, that was my attempt. So that's why the songs are constantly evolving. There are sometimes little mini suites in songs. It, it really just comes to that, that's the one rule. And it doesn't really matter how you crack that nut because there are many different ways to make that happen, but that's the goal. I hereby motion to make that the rule for all music moving forward. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I mean, I always, it's, it's, it, I totally agree. It's funny that you say that because it's like, I always thought this was the rule. But then, right. you know, to be totally blunt here, what happened is there was kind of this period of time it, between maybe the mid 90s and the end of the century in which when instrumental hip hop kind of became a thing, I'm not slandering any particular, you know, records, but but that thing did kind of become aesthetically more about like a vibe than really the arrangement, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes perfect sense to me that like when people are like, "Oh yeah, I just want some beats to chill and study to," <laughs> like when people say that kind of shit about instrumental hip hop, it makes perfect sense to me because the path of least resistance when you're making that music is to just kind of make a, a chill beat that is just floating along that isn't really doing a whole lot and it isn't out to truly grab 100% of your attention. Mm. So, so I was kind of working against that if I'm being totally, you know, uh, honest. Yeah. And I think uh, definitely dead ringer helped break out of that mold of, of, chill hop um so let's talk a little bit about some of your uh your artistic collaborations with rappers and i'm thinking specifically of uh you and blueprint um uh soul position can you talk a little bit about like 
working with Blueprint, I always felt like one of the best songs in Dead Ringer, you know, that's not an instrumental, is uh, The Final Frontier. Um, can you talk a little bit about just about how you guys hooked up and, and what it's like uh, to work with them? Yeah, sure. So uh, going back to the late 90s, there was the, the Columbus hip hop scene was fairly small. I think it's safe to say that like if you and anybody that was involved in it, for the most part, we, we all knew who each other were. And there's this annual thing that they have here called the Ohio Hip Hop Expo. And it was a pretty big deal back then uh, because it was really a showcase. They had battles, you know, the, the B-boys, the MCs, the DJs. And in theory, they had like a graffiti battle. But the first three were the really performative ones that were like, oh shit, people are going head to head, you know, <laughs> somebody's gonna get fucking murked today on the mic or something, you know. And uh, so, there was a hip hop expo and I can't remember which year it was, but basically out blueprint had made a name for himself locally as a battle MC. You, you probably don't, you think of him more as a writer now, but at the time he was, and I'm not exaggerating top three battle rap rappers in the city. I mean, he could freestyle and fucking embarrass you if you wanted, if you were a rapper, you know, and, so he had a rep there and he had his, his, you know, his crew greenhouse with the waitlist records. They were, they were doing their thing, but they were sort of like, and we've talked about this and he's talked about this publicly. So I feel comfortable saying it out, out loud without it sounding like slander, but they were a little bit in my experience, kind of like kept, it seemed like the hip hop scene in Columbus kept them at arm's length. They were kind of like, oh, well, you're, you're really going to do it your own on your own. Everybody else was basically their goal was like their their social hierarchy was based on being on a label. And so just frankly, the megahertz, the megahertz were the first group to get on even a small indie label like Fondalum. They were kind of, there was validation at that point in time around mm -hmm. being on a label and they didn't have a label deal. They were doing everything themselves. So they were a little bit like the redhead stepchild of the hip hop scene at the time. But I always thought he was an incredible rapper. And, you know, I had heard some of his, his written rhymes and I thought, I was just like, this guy's fucking amazing. He, you know, he deserves to be a star. And so I, you know, I, I said something to, you know, at a, at a hip hop expo, I said, hey man, we should just do some, you know, let's just do some recordings, see what happens. And it kind of fell together very quickly. He was living in Cincinnati and I would drive down there to record shit. You know, I had a mixing board and basically load up my car and drive down there and then come back and then we mix in. I don't think it was that long after that until we had that original Soul Position EP done and Rhyme Sayers put it out and off we go. Mm -hmm. Dope, man. Thank you for that. Um, you know, sort of just uh, sort of just moving onward uh, chronologically, um, another collaboration that you did that was, you know, had a lot of eyes on it was uh, Magnificent City with um, AC Alone. And, uh, you know, we're, we're all big AC fans. Uh, he's a bit of a recluse, though, so I doubt we'll ever get him on the show. But, uh, you know, having you uh, here and having uh, worked with him, um, can you give us a little insight on the making of the album? And, you know, also just as a producer, um, how does he strike you? Yeah, um, so how Magnificent City happened is, going back to the Inner City Griots record, I was just blown away by what they were doing. I was like... Mm -hmm. These guys are basically the 
to me, they were the LA version of organized confusion, but almost even farther out, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and so I, and, and, you know, I, gosh, this was by the two thousands, you know, I think that he had, yeah, definitely the all balls don't balance record had come out and the book of human language record had come out. So he had established himself in my mind is mm-hmm. functionally the best rapper in LA. I mean, no disrespect to anybody, but in my, you know, to a guy who was, that's his, you know, where he, that's his leanings, artistic leanings. I, I thought he was, I, I just thought his output was incredible. And I knew Peter who ran Decon, still know him of course. And um, so through Peter, I, we were just, you know, I did a couple beats on the love and hate record. And I think another one of his records. And so we had kicked around this idea of like me and him doing a record together. And it got to this place where we had just talked about it. We had been talking about it. My life was a fucking, but when Dead Ringer came out from 2002 until, it wasn't until maybe 2008 in which I really kind of like stepped back and said, I need to learn how to function as an adult because I was just ripping and running every minute. I was constantly on tour or remixing or making records or mixing records. I just didn't stop. And, and it, it wasn't that healthy. I, you know, I, it, I'm, I'm not very proud of a lot of the things that I did at that time, but I'm saying that to detail how I could be in a situation where I really wanted to make this record with him, but there was just so much shit going on in my life that it became one of these recurring conversations. You know how you hate that? You know how you see somebody and you're like, yeah, we should do something or we should do something. And then, and then once you say it four or five times, it's just like, you got to shut the fuck up about it or do something. You know what I mean? <laughs> one or the other, but stop talking about it. He basically had that conversation with me and he was like, listen, dude, we either got to stop fucking talking about this or make the record, but it's one or the other, bro. And, 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 <laughs> and that's when I, I just cleared my plate and okay. Do I, Cause I really did want to do it, you know? And so we buckled down and what I loved about working on that record was it was the, really the only time in my life where, right up front I said well what do you want the production to sound like and he said anything he's like send it all and I was like anything like anything anything he's like send it all drums no drums 80 bpm 120 bm send it all I don't care just send it all and uh it was the only rap record I've ever made that really or I should say the first rap record I've ever made that truly had no parameters put on it before we started it and I was frankly, I mean, I'll use a beautiful mind as an example. I didn't make that thinking it was going to be, I was just trying to make, he's like, okay, he says anything. I'm just going to make dope shit, whatever it sounds like and send it and we'll see what happens. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that I'm, I'm very happy with the results of that process. So man, thank you. Uh, this is kind of a two-parter and I guess I'll, I'll do the one and then ask the follow-up and it's that, um, we see your studio in the background, a lot of like cool synths and machines. I'm going to admit, I don't know what they are, but uh, um, is there a record collection lurking back there somewhere where you a vinyl based oh, sampler always, I'll, or do you I'll, care about stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, always. Um, I mean, oh, strictly at the beginning of my career, that's all it was. I have a room in my basement. I've moved several times. I mean, I made Dead Ringer in Columbus then moved to Philly and lived for Philly, lived in Philly for 14 years in three different places oh, wow. and then moved back to Ohio in 2015. So I've moved that record collection, I don't know, five or six times probably, something. <laughs> yeah, that's um, a pain. I have a, a basement record room 
and then I have this here. I can show you the NPCs over here. And so what nice. I what I'm able to do is, is that a Donkey Kong yeah. skin? Uh, I used to do That's this cool, little man. routine with it a lot for shows. But I have uh, several of these machines. So what I do is I'll have, you know, my record rooms in the basement with an NPC. So I can just knock something up, mm. take the drive, take the disc up here, plug it in, dump it into Pro Tools, and then, you know, that's how it works. That's amazing. And that leads to part two, which I, I guess for you specifically, working with the, the myriad array of samples that you've used throughout your life, how much do you think it's inspiration and how much do you think it's craftsmanship that, that ends up in the final product? And that's probably different for every song, but just generally, I just wanted to ask you that. You know, what? It's, it's, it, it spans that spectrum, you know? Um, I can say, I guess to, to, if I'm deducing that question accurately, I guess some of it is another way to ask that question. How much of it comes down to technique and ability on the machine? And how much does it come down to just basically being blunt, like finding dope loops? <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. 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 Like um, how much of it is manipulation and how much of it is just like uh, your ear. Right, right, right. You know what I mean? Both are in play and, and it runs this, it's, it's a spectrum. And you have for for a guy like me, I've got to be willing to live anywhere on that spectrum, you, you know. So I, I look at guys like Q-Tip or an inspiration because their his ear for loops is just so incredible. Technically, I don't think anything he's done on a sampler is that inspirational, you know, or 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 in in the technical sense of it. But he he is in my opinion, probably the best loop selector in the history of rap music. And that's a, that's, that's a skill into itself. It might not sound like it, but it, it, it's a really, really hard thing to do. And then there's technical guys like Dilla and Premier that have inspired me in a, in a, you know, to, in terms of hearing anything and being able to chop, chop it or just manipulate it or freak it or place it, whatever it is, the technical side of it is, you know, that's also got to be in play um i could spit put it you know there's different songs <laughs> it, it 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 varies song to song there's certain things that i've done that are highly technical and there's certain things that i've done that are not and then there's a lot of stuff most of the stuff is kind of in between uh you've gotten a lot of uh interesting placements i feel like dead ringer came out and then it seemed like five six seven years later it's in car commercials. I remember being in like high-end hotels and hearing it in the lobby. Like, um, do you, was any of that your original intent? Did you ever foresee your music and also with the, the beautiful mind piece being used um, in a TV show? Did you ever see that trajectory for your music? And, and how do you feel about it as kind of an, an underground artist traditionally whose music has kind of found this interesting niche in the in mainstream imagination? Yeah, it was definitely never intentional. In my experience, I don't think it's possible to calculate your way into a, a, a placement or a license for a song. Maybe for people that are smarter than I, they can, but I can't. You know, for me, all I can do is just make music that I think is dope that, and then put it out and kind of hope for the best. You know, so the only strategy that I've got around licensing is to basically just keep making records, you know, because the, the one thing I've learned is like, 
you know, every record isn't going to necessarily have a thing that's going to resonate with people in that world. But the, the number one thing is just don't go dormant for too long. And that's not a problem for a guy who's fairly, you know, as long as you're somewhat prolific, it's not a problem. Um, as far as speaking about the, how I feel about it in terms of like, you know, underground versus visible. I, when I first started making music, I understood how people could see, both fans and artists could see the world of music and, you know, recording artists and their output um, on a paradigm of like public visibility to underground. And that is the, you know, the paradigm on which it, it is analyzed. Every year that I've been doing this, my ability to see music through that lens kind of gets chipped away a little bit more and more. So, so at this point in time, it's almost impossible for me to see it through that lens. And it's uh, in large part because I just don't care. It, it, do, it doesn't matter to me what, I mean, I, I look at, you know, Lizzo is a perfect example of somebody who made a fucking amazing album and it's, you know, might've been the most popular record of the year. And then, and I, there's a lot of records that don't move me that are the most undergroundest shit that, you know, and, and so I, I can't even see it through that. You know, the paradigm on which I see the assessment of licensing and music is one of quality and integrity, if you will, for my own person, as, as, as it relates to myself. So, you know, the, 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 the danger, the big danger in licensing for me is not in putting a piece of music somewhere and it changing the perception of, of me in the eyes of, of a fan. It's the risk is in me potentially changing what I do and what I put out and what the music that I make in an attempt to calculate how to get a license, you know? Because financially, I don't think, I don't understand why you wouldn't want your favorite artist to be financially stable. Right. That never made any sense to me. I remember the first couple time or two I got a license and a, and, and, and a couple of fans would come to me at shows and they'd be like, what are you doing, man? You're selling out or something. And I'm like, it didn't even make sense to me. I was like, it's the same piece of music that's, you know, <laughs> it's like saying you're, you, 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 you like to listen to this record in your car, but you don't want to hear it in your home stereo. It's just, it's, all it is is environment. It's the same fucking piece of music. What are you talking about? It didn't make any sense to me, you know? You know, um, I, I want to just sort of uh, bring it back full circle to Dead Ringer again. I, I remember when the album dropped and, and it, it wasn't that much long after. I mean, just a few weeks, it felt like the uh, DJ Shadow comparison started to roll in. <laughs> And uh, we would be remiss not to bring that up. And I mean, certainly, I it's fine. Go for, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly it's an, uh, you know, um, a monumental album that uh, stood out in people's minds. But, you know, I just wanted to know, like, when, when did those comparisons start getting back to you? And, you know, perhaps how, how do they sit with you? Um, I, I think probably around the time that you heard it, it was in the time I heard it. You know, okay. it felt like right off the bat, you know. Um, I never, I guess a few things. At first, I did kind of take it as, well, I mean, to go back then, when I'm, what, 25, 26 years old when Denver comes out, I mean, we're, you know, we're all, you know, you, you're some sprightly young men, but I'm a, I'm a fucking ancient, you know, 
44 years old right now. And so when I look back on 26 year old me, I realize that like ego and pride and all those things played a much bigger role in, 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 you know, my consciousness than they do now. Um, so I was a little bit at the time, Oh, I want to be seen for my own, you know, that, that prideful thing of, I want to, I want to be recognized for what I, you know, what I'm, what I do and not what he does or, or whatever. Um, but that quickly kind of fell by the wayside because I realized that, and, and I've talked to Josh, he's, he's a really nice guy. He took me on tour maybe at 03 or 04 or so. And um, I, uh, I realized that it's basically a lineage, you know, and I, I didn't, I, shortly after the comparison started, I just took it as a compliment because I recognized that to me, the, the core of it is what happened is for most people introducing came out and it changed their perceptions about what they could like, mm-hmm. you know, they, they, it, to that record exposed a lot of people to an instrumental style of music that they didn't even think they would like. And in some ways, Dead Ringer did a similar thing. And so it's natural for people to, you know, that, that I, so I, because of that, I always took it as a, you know, coming from a place of, of love for the most part, and then kind of like a playful, like, oh, well, what's better? Like when people compare, I don't know, whatever, Illmatic to Ready to Die or something, I'm just picking an, an example out of thin air, but like, you know, if you interpret that dichotomy as like somebody really thinking that, that Ready to Die sucks or Illmatic sucks, I think you're a little off there. I think that people are kind of having a fun, good natured thing with two things that they love. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I've always kind of just, uh, shrug whatever who cares <laughs> right on man thank you great answer we we appreciate that um this is like hyper specific but just in case this is the only time i talk to you i just yeah. really want to sure. know how did saliva end up on the victor vaughn record <laughs> so i knew max lawrence in philly it's, i was living in philly and he hit me up and he was running the the label you know it's his label that put out the um the Victor and uh you know i loved doom i mean to me uh operation doomsday was like i mean to our whole world that record was a, a fucking neutron bomb man it was it just it, it my experience living through it was it was like dylan going electric it was just i, I can't overstate how big of a fucking deal it was because for a number i won't get into the, the 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 why of it you know I think anybody can go research that if they're interested, but so to have an opportunity to do some beats on an MF doom record, I was like, shit. Yeah, man, definitely. And he's like, well, he's going to build it under the Southern news. Like, I don't care. It's fucking doom, man. And uh, it was pretty simple. I just, you know, <laughs> in, in typical doom fashion, we never talked on the phone. <laughs> I, you know, I, I met up with him in uh, Austin, Texas, you know, a, a little bit after that, but I mean, at the time of recording, it was just rip and run style, you know, two track off the beat CD, boom, go, it's done. And I was like, cool, you know? And, and I, 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 it wasn't until later that I realized to me this, again, that period, I was just doing beats and remixes. I was just rapid fire, you know, just anything I could do. It wasn't until maybe a year or two later that it's like, holy shit, I did a record with Doom. That's like, that's dope. That's dope. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Um, as we kind of turn the corner home here, I wanted to ask a little bit about uh, 
R, what is it? RJ's Electrical Connections. Yeah, the label. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you you've been putting out stuff um, under under this this label. You tell us a little bit about the kind of how and why of that, and also how did you land on the perfect name? As a perfectly named podcast, <laughs> I can appreciate how you name that Radio Shack style. Like, take us a, a little bit into that. Um, sure. So, the the main drive be- behind the label was I found myself at a at a, a juncture in life where, um, so it was two thousand maybe eight, sometime around two thousand eight two thousand nine maybe. Um, the third hand had come out in 2007 and that record I had signed to uh, XL records to do that. And, you know, we had a multi-album deal, um, but I wanted to do a couple of side, you know, I had the soul position stuff and there was other, you know, there's some rap records I wanted to do. And I was, I basically had finished this, the first insane warrior record. And so I had these side projecty type of things that I wanted to do. And, and I found it uh, mildly challenging. I love the people at, at XL you know, they've all been always been super great to me, but navigating that was a little bit of a challenge because, you know, they weren't, they didn't necessarily want to put sign on to put out all of my weird side projecty shit. And at the same time, there's a contractual thing to navigate for me. Just, they can't just say, Oh, just go do whatever you want. You know, it doesn't work that way because we've got a contract in place. So we kind of just, you know, we, we, uh, we both sort of sat down and, and, and I, and it feels like, I mean, I think I was, you know, the, I was the one who said, you know, I think it makes the most sense for me to go out and kind of do this on my own. And, but the, the, the thing that was the few things that, that kind of added to that was I also got back the ownership of the masters, the Def Jux records were licenses. So I technically licensed those records to Def Jux. Uh, and so I got those masters back sometime around then when the, the label was basically, you know, they were closing up shop. So I had these masters and I wanted to have them, you know, issued and out in the public. Uh, but then I also had this other, you know, these, this, this desire to do side projects. And then there was this drive of like, well, what am I going to do it for the next 10 years? Am I going to just be, am I going to make records that somebody else owns? You know, and there's also a kind of a, a moral, I started to have some moral qualms with that is somebody who's always effectively self-funded their own records. I don't need a, I've never needed a label. I mean, I was out of pocket. The, the, the day Dead Ringer was released, I was in the hole. I spent 1500 bucks to master that record myself. So, you know, I, I have no problem funding a record. If I don't need a label to fund it, then I think that there is a, a, a moral argument that whether they do or don't, provide you in advance that you should own those masters, you know? So I went out and I looked for a distribution deal and, you know, I ended up with the orchard and been there ever since. And now I own all the, you know, save for the third hand and the, you know, the side project, the AC loan stuff is decon and the sole position stuff is Ryan Sayers, but everything that's billed under RJD2, save for the third hand I own now. That's so, so dope. Oh, wait, in the name, sorry, the name. RJ's the, Electrical Connections. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to swing the camera over a little bit this way. And if I tilt this up just a little bit, you can kind of just see this is a modular synth up here. Yeah. Um, I got into, and also all wow. these synths back here 
every one of these are things that I've restored. I basically bought them used on the cheap and took them apart and fixed uh, them, okay. repaired them, restored them. I got into, you know, both synth building and re restoration work. And so at the time I was doing all these, you know, I was build outs on here. I'll grab something to give you an idea of what, if I wasn't making music, you know, soldering <laughs> PCBs and wiring things up like this is what I was doing. So, you know, the electrical connections thing. Oh, and I had also named my publishing company that. So it's okay. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Also, if you need your house rewired, how dope would it be just for RJD2 to show up with like. <laughs> you're, you're joking, but I've, 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 my dad's an electrician. I was going to add, that was my next question. You seem like you have an electrician kind of background. Yeah, yeah. My dad's an electrician and I also have a, you know, I just, I'll just say without divulging too much, um, I have some experience in real estate. And so I am, you know, I've done a fair amount of house wiring and, and, and such. So Okay. So new reality show, RJD2 rewires your house and the beats are inside. The beats are in the house. Yeah, the beats are free. <laughs> drywall, you got to pay for it. That's what's up. Hey, we really appreciate you making the time to uh, to chat with us today, man. Best of luck on, on all your future endeavors. We're just, we're, we're oh. huge fans. Thank, thank you guys. I mean, thanks for having me, man. You know, I love what you guys are doing. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm humbled to be on here, man. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Pleasure to meet you. Thanks Same. again, man. Thank you. Right. Take care. Easy, you guys. Peace, man. Thank you. Peace. Dad bod rap pod. That was our interview with RJ D2. I, he gave up the goods, guys. I I really appreciated um, a lot of a lot of what he said there. No, Nate. Well, I need a few electrical outlets in my new spot I moved into. So <laughs> that was the that was the best part for me was knowing that he could he could wire some ish up. If he ever comes through San Jose on tour, I will uh, I will break him off couple hundred bucks throw an outlet <laughs> underneath this table uh no he he was so cool so open his man cave studio synth lab is so sick dope, uh, dope. when he when he tilted the camera over to show us the like bukla style crazy synth with all the cords and patches Wires. i was just like yep. that, that is so cool man yeah um so anyway he he was really 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 open with us and just like a cool person who like you know, beyond all the great music that he's made, he just seems like a really solid dude, which, you know, we always appreciate. Absolutely. And, and even in his presentation, like how we saw him, he had electrician vibes. Like totally. he looked like, totally. it, he looked like he totally. would just show up and be like, okay, show me where the outlet is. Right. Like if, um, he's, if he stood up, we'd see one of those, um, one of those belts. <laughs> those belts. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> A exactly. utility belt. Utility belt. Yeah. Utility. He has like some 45 adapters and like some, <laughs> some pliers. 
the depth jux and utility belt. Yeah. The um, eighth, eighth inch cords. Um, <laughs> so, so he talked a little bit, um, something I, I wanted to circle back on. He kind of talked a little bit about what instrumental hip hop kind of was, you know, what DJ Shadow did mm-hmm. and then kind of how he took it from there. And one of, one of his kind of, uh, theories or innovations he felt was um they're constantly changing shit up like right. he he said something to the effect of i i change shit up every four to eight bars in the style which i thought was very interesting in the style of a curtis mayfield record or something like that mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that okay. was fascinating to hear yeah, like how directly influenced he was especially by like Kurt tom and like all that stuff we love too and it's like Wow, I, I I don't think I would have drawn that parallel necessarily. So to mm-hmm. him, him spell it out is is fascinating. But he on the other side of that, um, uh, not theory, but like just the thing that he thought he was like there. And then there was this whole other world of like instrumental hip hop that like doesn't change up that yep. much. And like right, I, right. I, I felt like he was like right on the verge of naming some names. And I kind of <laughs> wanted to jump. I, I was ready to have that conversation, but he didn't want to go there. So like disclaimer this is not rjd2's yes. version of yes. it but i have some theories as to what he was talking about i feel like the other beat maker dudes always like don't fuck with dj cam and don't feel like dj cam is on their level okay. like there was yeah. a time when um you know he was he was the hot shit and he was being compared to a lot of these cats and i've always felt like they kind of held him at arm's <laughs> distance and then mm-hmm. there's the whole world of like Thievery Corporation, Kruger and Dorfmeister, G-Stone Records, like more like a lounge take Mm -hmm. on instrumental hip hop or acid Mm -hmm. jazz or whatever you want to call it. And I I have spent my fair amount of time having that music on in the background while I got stoned. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just different from what Shadow, RJ, even a Prefuse was doing where it's like so much intricate world building. Everything is changing constantly. Like one is clearly more work than the other, but Mm. that doesn't necessarily make it like better sonic wallpaper to go back to what we were talking about in the intro about like the lo-fi movement, right? Right, right. It's a bit more akin to a lo-fi style. It's just longer. It's like a seven minute song instead of a 137 second song. You know what I mean? Right, right. Right. Yeah. No, no, totally. Totally. It, I feel, um, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I've, I've talked way too much. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, nothing. I was going to say it kind of, it, you know, it reminded me of um, how in depth this, the sample work was on a dead ringer, um, you know, speaking to RJ and having him sort of break down certain things. And it reminded me of how, you know, I mean, the, the DJ shadow comparisons keep coming up, but you know, in the same way that um, organ donor, introduce people to you know the original cut um the same way with the um seven day war the original sample yes um both of those escape escape my mind right now but you know rj brought forth the uh marion black who knows sample so Mm -hmm. to a whole generation of people you know what i mean and it's like that song personally is like very important and striking i love that and that was the first time i've heard i heard it when he sampled it and you know that was right on the sort of cusp of um, DJ Shadow, the product placement, the the, the rare forty five, the the you know all the um, all the attention that Soul forty fives were getting. So I mean, I think RJ just hit all those marks, man. You know, like I he, believe that's a Columbus record too. So it has like extra. Right. Oh wow! Really? And to, okay. Just to like be wow. that dude. Uh, organ donor is Giorgio Moroder. Tears. Right. And right. Uh, 
six days is Colonel Bagshot. I can't remember the name of the Colonel song. Bagshot. That's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that, yeah. that Mary in Black, who knows, is on uh, the Capsule um, Numero group uh, compilation. You guys should all, after yeah, you're yeah. done listening to us, go listen to that song. That song is amazing. Amazing. And I had amazing. forgotten that RJ. Um, yeah it's such he sort a, of such... he sort of brought that to the masses at least for me you know into the consciousness of you know some kid who was like on message boards so um shout out to him for that and i was my, reminded of that when he was just sort of talking about samples and stuff and um yeah man what what a great insightful talk and we yeah, were talking it... off mic and i feel like we should we should talk a little on mic like we we really focused on dead ringer and dead ringer is a, such a great record but i think since we last spoke is like a very good instrumental hip-hop record and like i agree intricate and intricately sampled and programmed instrumental hip hop record as well. And it has amazing art, you know, it's like, it's just mm-hmm. like a really mm-hmm. cool, it's a, it's a cool record. I think it, it like also deserves some acclaim. I kind of wish I had worked in a question about it now same, that I'm, same. in hindsight um, and talked about like what had, what had changed in his life and what had happened. I'm very intrigued. And this is not the first interview I've heard him mention where he, he talks about that time in his life where he was, what did he say? He was running and gunning. He was doing yeah. remixes. He was touring. He was putting out albums. He was just digging so hard, and like right. he was just on the go all the time. I think if we have him back again, I'd like to like unpack that a little bit and be like, "What? Like, tell us more. Like, what? What? Yeah. Why you go? Why were you going so hard? You know what right. I mean? Right. And, and, right. and to, to be just wrapped up in that whole Def Jux universe too at the time. I mean, how how more perfect could it have been? But you know, having said that, the 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 album's like sample palette was definitely not the direction of what Def Jux was doing. You know, there's a lot yeah. of happy soul shit. Yeah. On so to have that as sort of this mixed bag, I think, especially, you know, upon years later looking back, it's just fucking incredible. Totally. You know what always gets in my head, like it's in my head now, is that part on 1976 where like unexpectedly it just starts going Istanbul. Oh, yeah. it's like, I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm just like I'll be like in the shower just like shaking right. my head like is right. right it's like it, there's something catchy about the way that he produces and it's like totally. it's weird to say that about these wordless like mutant funk evolving things right. but like he catches little moments in songs that are so like springy yeah. Um, yep yeah uh dead writer or what's it called uh, uh ghost writer writer, uh, writer. Cut, yeah. edit was my like go-to RJD2. I had to have that on 45 and I used to play that all the time when I um, DJed art galleries and people would always come up to the turntables and they're like, this RJD2, but like, what's yeah. different about it? And I'm like, I don't know, yeah. but it's a, it's a remix. Like, right. just, I don't know. Something about his music is very springy, very welcoming. It brings people to the table. And, and it, I, I think at the risk of sounding kind of almost too plain about this, his approach is very hip hop. You know, as we as we compare and contrast with something like a thievery corporation or, you know, Mm. some of the more atmospheric chill stuff that was coming out, um, his approach is decidedly hip hop. Um, A lot of that stuff you could almost break dance to. You know what I mean? That was that is the aesthetic of that shadow and RJD to kind of bring this uh, hip hop turntable sample driven um, kind of propelling thing, which is I also thought his pairing with Def Jux was interesting because um, he just kind of paints with different colors than them. I think technically oh, well, yeah. speaking, he was right on with it, what L- an LP was doing, but it, um, it's just so interesting that LP even uh, vibed with it and kind of hearing the story behind that. So right. we, uh, we thank RJD2 for coming on. Uh, we want to, you know, shout out uh, 
you know, all the all the deaf jokes related folks we've had on in the past. It wasn't on purpose. But <laughs> it wasn't it was intentional. Cool. Right. No, it wasn't intentional, but also very cool. Uh, dovetailing nicely with uh, what had happened was Open Mike Eagles podcast, uh, which is going into, I think, episode four. Uh, right now, his his uh, podcast where he talks to LP about all of LP's history. Um, so it's just been a really good time kind of revisiting all of that stuff in that era. We may have a non-Def Jukes related guest coming up in future weeks. <laughs> Who knows? You got to stay tuned. Um, but with all that said, we want to uh, talk a little bit more about production with our question of the week. So if you're familiar with our program, you've been listening to recent episodes every week, I will post a question on Twitter at DadBodRapPod. If you answer before Monday noonish, uh, we might could read your tweet on air. And so the question this week, inspired by real life events, name a song that features a dope producer and a corny rapper. I'll say this again, just so we, we're grounded in the semantics of it. Name a song that features a dope producer and a corny rapper. I'm going to do an asterisk here. We're going to asterisk this one because I saw a lot of people took it in different directions. I am making a distinction of corny and whack not being like the same thing. I'm right. saying that you can actually be corny, but also be good in some instances. Uh, I was asked off air Who's an example of that? I think Chance the Rapper is the goat of dope meets corny. Um, he was not brought up in this at all. So maybe this is just my own take. Um, so here we go. Responses from you, uh, the Dad Bod Rap Pod listeners, followers. Um, this one, I think I'm starting with it, but it may be the ultimate example. And this comes from Subo at S-U-B-O-E. Shaq and RZA, very, very apt, um, very, very good. I will, I'm gonna I have one that I just thought of, but I'm gonna hold it till after this one. Um, at Trevor Haynes 33 says, John Cena's The Time Is Now, produced by Jake One. Yes, yes, I um, did a little bit of research <laughs> and, and, and not to interject too hard, but uh, and Jake One is our boy, but his name showed up in a couple uh, questionable things. Um, <laughs> shout out to Jake, he's the homie. And, yeah, you know, yeah. and with, with all the producers mentioned here, I mean, it's obviously no shade. Go no, 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 no. Go, go and get that money, like, you know. Yeah, but, for sure, yeah. dude. But it's hilarious that there is um, a Pitbull and Jake One song. So, <laughs> Shut the front door! <laughs> um, the John Cena one is huge, and I think he produced, like, Three tracks for John Cena, which blows wow. my mind. Wow. And um, also Wiz Khalifa. Okay. We're, ta we're, talking okay. About, we're talking about corny, dude. Come on. That's funny. Yeah. The, the yeah. one thing I'll say about that <laughs> is something Jake said in our interview live from his uh, beautiful back porch in Seattle. Paid um, for by John Cena. <laughs> <laughs> John Cena paid for that deck. Which is this. He said, especially in regards to white van music, but it really applies here. He doesn't worry about the content of the verses that he puts right. on no. his songs. He cares about the rapper's tone of voice. And right. apparently John Cena's tone of voice sounded like a big fat paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> songs in the key of money. Um, right. Uh, this one is from... 
Q at QM Rec League, who is a frequent contributor to our, Cume, to our timeline. Cume, like Cumulus Clouds. Oh, Cume Cum <laughs> Rec League. Thank you. Thank you. That was, that was uh, a close one, guys. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, had to, I had to ask him because I was calling him QM and he's like, Cume, my rapping name was Cumulus. I'm like, oh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Shout out, shout out to Cume. Uh, Too Short producing the first Kid Rock album. Dude, Which that's so, that's so gross. Did, did not know that. Definitely really gross. Also, uh, you know, Kid Rock is a child of wealth. So I hope, I hope Short Dog came up on that one. I'm sure he did. <laughs> um, the next one is one that was mentioned a couple times. Uh, and this is from at Chris Vera, two A's. Uh, also a frequent contributor to the timeline. And together now, Limp, Gis- Limp Biscuit produced by Premier which hurt my feelings when this came out. I remember um, that. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, it was, it was bad times. Also, Playa by Nelly, produced by The Alchemist. Oh. Uncle Al. Uncle Al getting them pre-2010 yeah. checks. <laughs> wow. Go ahead. Go wow. ahead. That's nuts. Let, yeah, let's, let's do one more. Um, and this is from at robot underscore keel. Just yesterday, I found myself wondering, why the hell did Timbaland spend so much time with people like Magoo, Bubba Sparks, and Petey Pablo? Not exactly sure to answer your question, but pick a song from any of those three rappers on a Timbo beat. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll make a Magoo tiny... and Petey Pablo and... I'm, are on I'm the same Bubba wavelength. Sparks That's what I was just about to say. Wavelength. Like, yeah. Magoo... Okay, corny. Yes, I, I agree. And like a, an unskilled rapper who happened to have a voice that sound like Q-tips. And they, they, I think they're just good friends. I think Petey Pablo, that's a whole separate conversation. And Bubba Sparks, I could say, you could say he got some of Tim's best beats and wasted them, but I don't think I would totally agree. And I think there's but, something to be yeah. said for like trying to capture different like areas of the market. And like, it, yeah. it, it was, it was before like, Atlanta being the center of hip hop was a, a certified thing and he was going for the South. I don't, I don't think that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, um, and I also think of his work with Nelly Furtado in, in, in trying to capture the whites. Like <laughs> he was not <laughs> brief, he was... brief, brief anecdote. I, <laughs> my, I was living with a couple of DJs when that came out and they were obsessed with those Nelly Furtado and, Timbaland songs yeah. and I hated yeah. them and I yeah. always said that they sounded like some Andrew Lloyd Webber shit and nobody got what I was talking about and I don't think I've ever been able to effectively explain why I don't like those songs so much it's just they're too big and the synth patches that he was using were just like they just sounded a lot like the Phantom of the Opera to me and if any oh, listeners so know funny. what I'm talking about okay okay um Man, am I gonna reopen Nelly Furtado just to just to interrogate that? I might. I might. Uh, I'm not that mad at. I'm not that mad at some Nelly stuff, though. I mean, she's a, no. she's some stuff that's okay. Tbh. I mean, she had yeah. some of those like weird collabs with uh, Jurassic Five, like on, yeah. when they. Yeah. And, and, and I thought idea. those were great. Yes, were you, that you brought that up in my Cut Chemist piece. There's a whole section about how Cut learned how to. Um, orchestrate and write harmonies and like to produce around a singer when he mm-hmm. did the version of Thin Line with Nelly mm-hmm. Furtado and that she wrote her own rap verse and he was super not into it when the <laughs> um, record company redid it with I think it was Maya 
for the video. Yeah. They yeah. Wanted, he wanted yeah. the Nelly Furtado version to be used. So he was like, he was bummed out on that. So interesting. Yeah, I, have, I have a weird, I've like spent a lot of time with that song. Apparently. Well. Yeah. I did not see this going down the, uh, the Nelly Furtado <laughs> hole, but I started it. Um, and, and we'll circle back to make somewhat of a defense of, of Bubba Sparks. I, he has a verse on the Dungeon Family album that clearly demonstrates he could, he was really good. He was just early. I, they didn't know how to do a white Southern rapper until Paul Wall came along. And I feel like, I feel like a couple years later, it, it totally would have worked. Um, but, you know, a lot more than a couple people had brought that up. Um, but, you know, I guess corny is in the ear of the beholder. Uh, and we are always open to your opinions at dad bod rap pod on Twitter. We are also on Instagram um don't share your opinion on instagram though i'm always weird when people get into like weird debates on instagram it's like we have a whole ass platform for that like right, right. show me a picture um but anyway you could you could do that too nate nate curates that so i post what you will um at dad bod rap pod on ig we do this podcast every freaking week this is a episode or has been episode 167 and we got more in the tank because we are the Dad Bod Rap Pod. Lonely Island Audio.